Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hi, I'm Michael Weatherly. And I'm Cody DePablo. We played agents Tony Donozo and Ziva David on NCIS, one of the world's biggest shows. And now we're doing a rewatch podcast. This is Off Duty with guests like Sasha Alexander. I'm really happy to see you guys, by the way. Eric Olson. By the way, you broke a finger. I lost a nail. <laughs> We've never really done this. Watch and listen every Tuesday on Spotify. Foof. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of child neglect and domestic violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On November 22, 1983, 36-year-old Betty Broderick strolled into her husband's San Diego law office. It was Dan's 39th birthday, and Betty wanted to surprise him. But when she peeked inside his executive suite, Betty's stomach dropped. Dan wasn't there. Even worse, she found the remnants of a birthday celebration with someone else— a half-eaten chocolate cake, an open bottle of wine, and two used glasses. Dan's receptionist explained that he'd left the office hours ago with his 22-year-old legal assistant, Linda Kolkina. Humiliated, Betty waited in her husband's office until dark, hopeful that Dan would return with a reasonable explanation. But he never came back. Eventually, she gave up and left. Betty drove home, completely destroyed. Each minute that ticked away was another minute that Dan was lying to her. Dan, the father of her four children, was undoubtedly cheating on her with another woman. And Betty wasn't one to take that lightly. She was going to hurt her husband right back. If Dan cared about one thing, it was his image. He loved expensive, tailored suits because of how they made him look powerful. The same went for the women on his arm. At one time, it had been Betty. Now she'd been traded in for a newer model. Betty went upstairs and gathered Dan's entire wardrobe and carried it out to the backyard. She doused his suits in gasoline and set them all on fire. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. 
Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're talking about Betty Broderick, a housewife from La Jolla, California, who gave new meaning to the phrase, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. After her husband left her for another woman, Betty shot both her ex and his new wife in cold blood, seeking revenge. This week, we'll learn how Betty's perfect world came crashing down when she discovered her husband's affair. We'll track Betty's increasingly violent behavior during the couple's protracted divorce until Betty took matters into her own hands and exploded in violence. Next week, we'll cover Betty's two highly publicized trials and discuss how her crime changed the conversation about divorce and infidelity in America. Elizabeth Ann Bichelia was born on November 7, 1947, in Bronxville, New York. Elizabeth, nicknamed Betty, grew up the third of six children in a wealthy Catholic family. Her father was a successful building contractor, and her mother was a housewife. Betty attended private schools, socialized at country clubs, and wore designer clothes. Betty was accustomed to having things done for her by the family's full-time maid. Her clothes were magically washed, pressed, and put away, without a second thought of any other way of living. Anything Betty asked for, she received. But her parents also made sure Betty realized they wouldn't support her forever. The Bichelias wholeheartedly subscribed to the gender roles of the 1950s and ensured Betty inherited their values. If she wanted to maintain the lifestyle she was accustomed to, she needed to find a rich Catholic man to marry and support her. In return, she would bear and raise his children and find her purpose in being a wife. Although the Bichelias didn't know it then, they were laying the groundwork for Betty's future emotional struggles. Before I continue with Betty's psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to psychologist Deborah Kashaba, certain kinds of parenting can determine whether or not a child will struggle to regulate their emotions. Dr. Kashaba said of spoiled childhoods, the caretakers did not provide sufficient teaching experiences for the child to learn how to regulate his or her impulses and emotions. By getting whatever she wanted, Betty never learned how to handle rejection or disappointment, nor did she ever face consequences for her behavior. With her parents there to soothe her every ache, Betty never learned how to rely on herself to solve her problems. She required a caregiver, whether that was a parent or a romantic partner, to console her and provide stability. Without them, her world could shatter in a moment. In order to survive, 
Betty needed someone else to take care of her and make her feel special. In October of 1965, she found that person. Betty was about to turn 18 when she met Dan Broderick at a party at the University of Notre Dame. Dan saw Betty across the room and, before they even met, boasted to his friends that she would be his wife one day. Later, he wrote his name on a napkin for Betty, and next to it, scrawled the letters MDA. It stood for Medical Doctor Almost. Betty wasn't impressed. She was a 5'10 blonde knockout and was used to dating equally tall and handsome athletes. Dan was short and wore thick, round glasses, but he was smart and driven. He was also a Catholic. Even though Betty didn't swoon over Dan's initial advances, he refused to give up, sending letters and telegrams to win her affection. During his first year of medical school, Dan finally persuaded Betty to go out with him. He put so much thought into their first date in New York City, Betty was suddenly overcome with affection for Dan. She said later that it was like a lightning bolt. On April 12, 1969, Betty and Dan got married. The ceremony and reception were all top of the line. Soon, they were off on their Caribbean honeymoon. But when they returned, Betty realized something. She and Dan had very different expectations of marriage. Betty had expected her husband to take care of her, when in fact she supported him and did the housekeeping while Dan busied himself with medical school. Life was harder than she imagined it would be, so hard that Betty often threatened to leave Dan. That is, until she discovered she was pregnant. Raised Catholic, Betty didn't know the first thing about birth control. She figured Dan knew how to prevent pregnancy given his medical education. She'd always wanted to be a mother, but imagined it would happen when she and Dan were more financially stable. Instead, a year into their marriage, Betty gave birth to a daughter named Kimberly. The couple was so unprepared and strapped for cash, Kim slept in a dresser drawer. However, as Dan finished up medical school, there seemed to be a light at the end of the tunnel. He would soon graduate, and Betty would finally be a doctor's wife. But then Dan decided he didn't want to be a doctor after all. He applied to Harvard Law School in the hopes of practicing medical malpractice law. Betty supported her husband's decision and acknowledged this move could bring them even more success down the road. But it also meant three more years of hardship, three more years of Betty earning the money to keep the family afloat, supporting her husband, and raising a young child. Dan's years in school and the addition of two more children took a toll on Betty. She once again threatened divorce. She felt robbed of a certain kind of lifestyle. She hated that she was the one to clean the house, not a maid. They couldn't afford a laundry machine, so Betty was forced to lug a weekly supply of dirty diapers to the laundromat, taking the city bus each way. It was hard for her to imagine happier days ahead. 
Dan expected her to provide for the family and raise the children without complaint. But Betty took every domestic chore as a personal slight. Later on, psychiatrist Dr. Park Elliott Dietz diagnosed Betty with narcissistic personality disorder. To the outside observer, narcissists often carry themselves like the most confident person in the room. But at the slightest inconvenience, slight or criticism, that veneer of security cracks and exposes an extremely fragile person with a lack of self-esteem and a skewed sense of self. Betty felt a narcissistic sense of entitlement and believed the world owed her something. With Dan busy at school and the responsibilities of the household and children falling to Betty, there's no question she wasn't getting the attention she felt she deserved. Up until her marriage to Dan, Betty's way of life supported her inflated sense of self. Her parents doted on her, other people cleaned up after her, and handsome men paid attention to her. Now she felt ignored by a husband who demanded her to make sacrifices. This period of hard work and little reward only exacerbated Betty's narcissistic tendencies. She made it clear to Dan this was not the life she signed up for. Still, Betty could never follow through on her threats of divorce. All she could do was remain hopeful that maybe one day things would turn around. Finally, Dan completed his law degree at Harvard in June of 1973. The family moved to San Diego, California, and things started looking up. Dan's star quickly rose as a medical malpractice attorney at the prestigious law firm Gray, Carey, Ames & Fry. He was an aggressive litigator, impressing his bosses daily. Many described Dan as a shark cold and vicious. Until he needed something from you, then he'd turn on the charm. After a few years with Betty's full support, Dan decided to leave the law firm and step out on his own. It was a risky move, but it proved fruitful. It only took a year for Dan's firm to become lucrative. He paid off the rest of his school loans, and Betty finally stopped working. At last, she was able to be the stay-at-home mom she'd always wanted to be. In 1976, the Brodericks purchased a large five-bedroom house in Coral Reef, a wealthy suburb in La Jolla, California. Two years later, they added a swimming pool to their backyard. In 1979, Betty gave birth to their fourth and last child, a son named Rhett. It appeared like the picture was complete. Fully embracing their financial freedom, Dan and Betty joined two high-end country clubs. They added a ski condo and a boat to their real estate portfolio. Nothing was unattainable. Designer clothes, top-of-the-line furniture, or lavish vacations. At last, Betty was the wife her mother told her she would be. She defined her own identity by her husband's wealth and career. She took credit for his success and felt she was an integral part of his rising status because of the sacrifices she'd made early on in their marriage. Betty would later say, love is putting the other person first. But behind closed doors, Dan and Betty's marriage was strained. 
Dan claimed Betty threatened divorce hundreds of times over the years. When Betty later claimed that they had a blissful marriage, Dan scoffed and called it pure fiction, a figment of her imagination. To Dan's recollection, his wife always found something that didn't quite meet her perfect standards. The eldest daughter, Kim, remembered Betty throwing a stereo at Dan and locking him out of the house multiple times. She also said that Dan was not the only target of the abuse. Betty often hit the children or threw things at them, and every time Betty would threaten divorce, Dan would tune her out. But to the outside observer, they were the picture-perfect family. They had the whole world at their feet. Coming up, Dan goes through a midlife crisis and seeks solace in the arms of someone Betty despises. Now, back to the story. By 1983, 36-year-old Betty Broderick struggled to find peace in her rocky marriage to her husband, Dan. Finally living the opulent lifestyle they always wanted in La Jolla, California, Betty still found ways to show her dissatisfaction, whether it was threatening divorce or abusing the couple's four kids. The years of hardship, coupled with Betty's narcissistic tendencies, haunted the family. Eventually, Dan pulled away from his wife. She started noticing peculiar behavior. With his 40th birthday on the horizon, Dan purchased a flashy red Corvette. He started wearing sunglasses like Tom Cruise in Risky Business. He went out drinking with his buddies more than usual and was even ticketed multiple times for drunk driving. Betty mocked Dan's cliched midlife crisis. Still, she bought every book she could on the subject to try to help her husband. Through her research, Betty learned that affairs with younger women were all too common. And as much as Betty denied it at first, it was yet another cliché that Dan checked off the list. Linda Kolkina was a fresh-faced 22-year-old receptionist at the law office where Dan worked. It didn't take long for her to catch Dan's eye. He hired Linda as his legal assistant, even though she couldn't type. At the time, Betty approved of the idea. She figured if Dan had more help with scheduling and paperwork in the office, he would be free to spend more time at home. But at a cocktail party one evening in 1983, Betty overheard her husband make a comment that stunned her. Dan looked over at Linda Kolkina and called her beautiful. And Betty had to admit she was. Linda exuded joy with her million-watt smile that caught the attention of many. She was light, fresh, and easygoing. Something about the way Dan looked at Linda sent a chill up Betty's spine. And then Betty thought, hadn't he once looked at her that way? Was she no longer beautiful to her husband? From that moment on, Betty grew suspicious that Dan and Linda were much more than colleagues. She looked for clues wherever she could. Paranoia ran through her veins. When she confronted Dan directly about her suspicions, he called her crazy. Betty also claimed that around this time, Dan began to verbally abuse her, calling her fat, ugly, old, and stupid. 
It eventually became more than Betty could bear. While alone on the night of her 36th birthday in 1983, Betty attempted suicide. She slit her wrists and swallowed every pill in the house. She woke up the next morning to Dan shaking her awake. Even in the wake of this attempt on her life, Dan still denied that anything was going on with Linda. He suggested that Betty seek help. Two weeks later, Betty visited Dan's office, wanting to surprise him on his 39th birthday. But when she arrived at his office unannounced, she discovered Dan had already left for the day with Linda. She also found a framed photo of Dan on Linda's desk. Her suspicions were finally vindicated. Betty went home seeking vengeance and set Dan's expensive tailored wardrobe on fire in their backyard. But Dan didn't even react when he came home to a pile of ash and an empty closet. He just ordered more suits and life went on. Again, she confronted him with the affair. Again, he denied everything. For two more years, Dan kept up the charade of their marriage. Finally, in 1985, he told Betty he wanted a divorce. Yet he still denied any involvement with Linda. Instead, he claimed he needed space from their marriage and what he called their incompatibility issues. Betty was stunned. During their separation, Betty felt isolated in the tight-knit, affluent community of Coral Reef. After all, Betty's entire existence had been inextricably tied to Dan for nearly two decades. Who was she without him? The separation destroyed any sense of self Betty had. Throughout all the years of their marriage, she'd always been the one threatening to leave. Now Dan had the audacity to walk out on her? She wouldn't let him get away that easy. Betty devised a plan to prove to Dan how much he needed her. She decided to drop the kids off at Dan's house without warning, one by one. She thought that if he had to take care of the children, he would come to appreciate all that Betty did as a mother, call off the separation, and come back home. But on multiple occasions, Dan wasn't home when Betty tried to drop them off. They were stranded on the doorstep outside for hours, alone. They cried and begged for Betty not to leave them there, but she was too committed to her plan. When Dan eventually got home and found one or more kids on his front stoop, he promptly took them in without protest. He hired babysitters while he was at work and came up with his own revenge plan. He started the process of filing for sole custody of the children, using Betty's abandonment against her. But it effectively made the four Broderick children pawns in their parents' divorce. Throughout the summer of 1985, tensions between Betty and Dan only deepened. Dan refused to communicate with his wife in any way. This naturally infuriated her. To force a response, Betty broke into Dan's house on multiple occasions. She smashed mirrors, spray-painted the walls, and caused thousands of dollars of property damage. When Dan tried to involve the police, their hands were tied. 
they couldn't even write up a report because the Brodericks were technically still married and the house was still shared property. By the fall, Dan finally got in contact with Betty, but it wasn't to reconcile. He told Betty it was time for her to start paying her own bills. He presented her with a $9,000 monthly allowance and divorce papers. Despite everything, Betty claimed that this took her by surprise. With the divorce finally underway, Dan's relationship with Linda was at last out in the open. Betty had been right all along. No matter how crazy Dan had tried to make her feel about the accusations, this justification gave Betty a new sense of entitlement. She was the wronged woman here. From that point forward, she used Dan's infidelity as an excuse to justify her actions, no matter how outrageous, illegal, or violent. Tensions between Betty and Dan skyrocketed once Dan began flaunting his relationship with Linda in public. The first Christmas after Dan and Betty separated, Betty accused him of kidnapping the kids and taking them to their ski condo with Linda without Betty's permission. Legally, this did not constitute kidnapping, but Betty exaggerated the circumstances to anyone who would listen. She also claimed Linda sent her a photograph of the couple and included a note saying, eat your heart out, bitch. But one of Linda's friends said this was entirely fabricated, just another story Betty told herself to soothe her ego. Family law specialist and social worker Dr. Bill Eddy explained that someone with a narcissistic personality disorder like Betty can convince themselves that anything is true if it makes themselves feel more secure. Eddy said, their thinking is often dominated by cognitive distortions, such as all-or-nothing thinking, emotional reasoning, personalization of benign events, minimization of the positive, and maximization of the negative. They may form very inaccurate beliefs about the other person, but cling rigidly to those beliefs when they're challenged, because being challenged is usually perceived as a threat. However, Betty had been right about Dan and Linda's affair for years, so she felt especially justified when pointing the finger at Dan for other wrongdoings, real or imagined. Betty also accused Dan of withholding the children from her as a way to antagonize her, even though she'd relinquished custody as a way to punish him. When she was with the children, Betty regularly used profane language to describe Linda, which infuriated Dan and inflicted trauma on the kids. Many friends and neighbors questioned why Dan would even let his kids spend time with Betty as her reckless behavior escalated. Family friend Ned Huntington believed that Dan could have taken more steps to sever Betty's custody rights, but said it had gone on so long that Dan just adjusted to her craziness. By the end of 1985, Betty had truly gone off the rails. When she looked in the mirror, she was no longer the lithe, beautiful, beaming housewife. Now, the woman looking back at her had gained 60 pounds. She'd lost her husband, her kids, her radiance. She lost control. The bitter divorce proceedings became the talk of Coral Reef. 
Betty struggled to find an attorney she deemed competent, hiring and firing five different divorce lawyers. None of them were strong enough to stand against Dan. She wasn't entirely incorrect. Dan had a wealth of legal experience and was able to influence the proceedings. Dan's attorney, Gerald L. Barry Jr., convinced the judge to close the divorce trial to the public to protect the children from further psychological damage. Every argument he presented made Betty seem like the crazy one and Dan a helpless victim. But Betty saw this as Dan using cutthroat tactics to protect his reputation as a successful lawyer and devout Catholic. She said he didn't want to walk out on his family because it would look bad. His public image was number one. Aside from custody, the most prominent roadblock in finalizing the divorce was, without a doubt, Dan's fortune. The dividing of assets was more complicated than a simple alimony agreement. For the first several years of their marriage, Betty had completely supported Dan while he earned two different degrees. She felt she was entitled to a hefty sum of spousal support, as he never would have earned his fortune without her help. In addition to splitting the bank account, Betty and Dan had to sell their house in Coral Reef, but they couldn't agree on a sale price. According to Dan, nothing was good enough for Betty, not even when they received an offer of $325,000, a figure that Betty previously approved. Now she claimed that $1 million wouldn't be enough to appease her. Fed up with the protracted argument, Dan figured out a legal loophole to approve the sale without Betty's permission. When she got word of the sale, she raced over to Dan and Linda's new house. Then she drove her Chevrolet Suburban right into their living room. Coming up, Betty refuses to accept Dan and Linda's marriage and proves there's no limit to what she might do to seek revenge. Now, back to the story. In 1986, 39-year-old Betty Broderick and 42-year-old Dan Broderick were deep in the throes of a nasty, protracted divorce. One of the final sticking points in the proceedings was the sale of their shared house in the Coral Reef neighborhood of La Jolla, California. When Betty learned that Dan used a court loophole to sell the property without her permission, she drove her Chevrolet Suburban right into Dan's new house in a blind rage. The four Broderick children were inside the house at the time, but luckily none were injured. Betty was arrested, taken away in a straitjacket, and confined to a mental hospital for three days. Betty placed the entirety of the blame for her outburst on Dan and excused herself from any kind of responsibility. She said of the incident, I am madder than hell and I want to kill him for being lied to and cheated. But that has nothing to do with being crazy. Anyone who wasn't mad would be crazy. After her release from the mental hospital, Betty received her portion of the money from the house sale. Several months passed without any major disruption. Dan perceived this as an indicator that he could control his ex-wife's outbursts by threatening her finances. Anytime he believed she was behaving badly, 
Dan withheld money from Betty's voluntary monthly allowance of $9,000. If she came over unannounced, she was fined. If she trespassed onto his property, another fine. But it didn't deter her. It further enraged her. She once smeared Boston cream pie all over Linda and Dan's bedroom. She even defaced legal divorce papers and replaced Dan's name with God and Linda's with bimbo and other colorful derogatory monikers. By a certain point, Betty racked up so many fines for acting out, she actually owed Dan money. Dan filed multiple restraining orders against Betty to keep her away from his new life with Linda. But the paperwork didn't stop Betty. She was jailed multiple times and fined thousands of dollars. And every time Dan ignored her, chose Linda over her, Betty felt more and more justified to act out. Dan just sat back, happy to let Betty dig her own grave, documenting every infraction for the divorce proceedings. On July 16, 1986, Judge Milton Milks officially granted Dan a divorce and awarded him sole custody of the four children. The 17-year-long Broderick marriage was officially over. Betty didn't even show up for court that day. She didn't have a lawyer at the time and mistakenly thought the ruling couldn't go through without her present. Although Dan felt victorious in that moment, their legal turmoil continued. They still had to hash out a financial settlement. Betty chose to represent herself during the alimony hearings. She claimed she couldn't find suitable counsel because of her husband's reputation. In 1987, Dan served as the president of the San Diego Bar Association. Although many believed she could have easily found a lawyer who wouldn't have had an issue litigating against Dan, Betty used this fact as another way to victimize herself. Broderick versus Broderick was the most talked about divorce in California. Betty and Dan both spoke to the press during the proceedings. Dan said in an interview with the San Diego Reader, I don't think there's a lawyer in America that's going to be able to satisfy her because no lawyer can get what the law won't allow. They can't murder me. They can't get every cent I have and give it to her. Nobody can. Still, Betty scored a victory in the proceedings in early 1987. The judge ordered Dan to increase her monthly spousal support payment to $16,100. But Betty insisted this still wasn't enough to support the lifestyle she was accustomed to. She explained in an interview, One shopping trip could eat up $2,000 for the kind of clothes I used to wear, I hate to tell you. In my old life, every outfit was like $2,000. In 1988, the judge upheld Betty's $16,100 monthly spousal support. They also reinforced Dan's restraining order against Betty. She couldn't come within 100 yards of Dan's house. But Betty routinely ignored this mandate. Betty couldn't accept the fact that Dan had won. She again appealed her monthly spousal support, even though Dan went out of his way to make her comfortable. He bought her an ocean view home and continued to pay the family's boat and club fees, allowing her to continue her membership. 
Still, Betty loathed Dan's happiness. He had Linda and the kids and his career, his life. Betty had nothing. Compounding this loss was Dan's upcoming nuptials. He wanted to move on with his life and marry Linda. They set a wedding date for April 22, 1989. It infuriated Betty. There was no way she could ignore the fact that it would have been her and Dan's 20-year wedding anniversary that same month. Friends of the couple claimed Betty was so upset she stole the wedding guest list. Linda and others grew concerned. Betty had proven several times over the lengths she would go to express her hurt. What if her bizarre behaviors turned dangerous or deadly? She said, My emotional outbursts were only a response to Dan's calculating, hateful way of dealing with our divorce. He was hammering into me and everyone else that I was crazy. How long can you live like that? In the spring of 1989, Betty bought a 38 caliber handgun and cleaned it in front of her sons, who were 10 and 13 at the time. She openly told them she was going to use it to kill their father. Betty bragged to her friends that she'd been taking target practice. On the day of the wedding, Linda begged Dan to wear a bulletproof vest under his tuxedo. He refused, but did hire security guards. The wedding surprisingly proceeded without any disruption from Betty. But the messy divorce battles raged on in court, as Betty continued to appeal the spousal support and custody arrangements. The protracted arguments took their toll on the well-being of the four Broderick children. When Kim turned 18, Dan temporarily kicked her out of the house without explanation. The tension eventually subsided, and Dan agreed to pay her college tuition that fall. Lee wasn't so lucky. She dropped out of high school and moved back in with Betty. Later, Dan formally disowned her for being on her mother's side and wrote her out of his valuable will. The two boys, Daniel and Rhett, were tossed back and forth in the custody battle. As the proceedings escalated, Dan once again cut off all contact with Betty, only speaking to her through their attorneys. With the lines of communication severed, Betty resorted to leaving countless, irate, profane voicemails on Dan and Linda's machine. Betty claimed that whenever she called Dan's house, she intended to speak to her children, but when she heard Linda's voice on the message, or as she referred to her, the bimbo on the machine, it set her off. Dan and Linda would then transcribe the voicemails to use against her in court as she tried to regain custody of her two young sons. The Brodericks' battle came to a head in the fall of 1989. Dan wouldn't allow Betty to spend Halloween with their youngest son. This led to another round of hostile voicemails on the machine. Dan's lawyer sent Betty papers that threatened to hold her in contempt of court if she continued harassing her ex-husband. Betty later pointed to this letter as the final straw. It was the spark that lit her on fire. She felt trapped, like she could never gain control over her own life with Dan's expert law tactics haunting her every move. 
This latest setback was especially frustrating because she had finally been making strides to get her life together. She'd found a job, planned to move to a condo to save money, and felt like maybe she could stand on her own two feet. She felt like Dan's lawyer's threatening letter was an unnecessary, petty blow, and it enraged her. During the early morning hours of Sunday, November 5th, 1989, Betty Broderick couldn't sleep. After tossing and turning through the night, she looked over those legal papers with a new sense of fury. Then she got dressed and retrieved her gun. She went down to her car and just started driving. She thought perhaps she'd drive to the beach and end her life there, thinking suicide might be her last resort. But Betty never made it to the beach. Instead, she found herself at Dan and Linda's new home in Marston Hills. Using her daughter's key, Betty unlocked the door and stepped inside the home of the new Mr. and Mrs. Broderick. Betty claimed she only went inside because she needed to talk to Dan, the man she once loved, person to person. He'd cut her out of his life, and she needed to see if they could come to some kind of resolution that appeased her, so they could all move on with their lives fairly and peacefully. That's what she told herself. But when she opened the door to the master bedroom, revolver in hand, Betty's rage suddenly escalated to an all-time high. She was the woman scorned. And she was furious. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Betty Broderick's story. We'll see the violent action Betty took against Dan and Linda and explain the controversy in the subsequent trials that followed. We'll hear how Betty's story influenced her children and the American people. We'll also find out where Betty is today. For more information on Betty Broderick, amongst the many sources we used, we found Jeanette Dwayze's San Diego Reader article, Till Death Do Us Part, extremely helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Juan Borda. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Rachel Taff, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa Richardson